Hello and welcome to Tone Menders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host as we dig into a really great film, The Iron Claw. It features a lot of wrestling, but it is really the story of family tragedy and loss that is at the heart of this film. We follow the Van Eric family as they rise and fall and rise again in the world of 70s pro wrestling. From their father down through their four sons, the squared circle plays a major role in all of their lives. The sport is a double-sided coin as it gives them fame, but it also brings with them incredible destruction. Joining us today for this talk about the film, we have the production sound mixer, sound editor, sound supervisor, re-recording mixers, we've got the whole team. So let's meet them now and talk about this unique film. First up, we have Paul Ledford, the film's location mixer. Welcome to Tone Menders, Paul. It's nice to meet you. Thank you, Timothy. Yeah, I'm Paul Ledford, uh, production sound mixer, and I live here in Louisiana. So I was lucky to sleep in my bed every night while we shot this film in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Awesome. Also lucky enough to have um, great support. I mean, they brought me in, got to go to location scouts, do some testing ahead of time, have a chance to speak with art department, you know, wardrobe, things like that that would uh, help us down the line. Perfect. Next up, we have Martin Gwynn Jones, who's the supervising dialogue and ADR editor. It's great to meet you, Martin. Thanks for coming on. Very nice to meet you, Tim. Also with us, we have Graham Rogers. Graham was the FX re-recording mixer on this film. I'm very lucky to have you as a guest today, Graham. I can't believe we haven't met before. This is great to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. Thanks for having me. Then we have our co-returning guests, starting with Brennan Mercer, who is Ironclaw's sound designer. It's good to talk to you again, Brennan. Nice to see you. Nice to be here. Thank you. We also have Matt Chan. Matt and Brennan were previously on Tone Menders talking about their work on the Halo series. Matt served as the re-recording mixer and sound supervisor on Iron Claw. Great to see you again, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. So I guess my first question is, many of you have worked with the director of this film, Sean Durkin, previously uh, on The Nest in 2020. Maybe we'll start with you, Matt. Can you tell us about how you built a relationship with him so he was quick to bring you back on board for this film? Yeah, The Nest was the first time we worked with Sean. That was his last film. And that relationship really came to us through our friendship with the picture editor, Matt Hannum. We've all worked with Matt over the years. Matt and I kind of came up together in Toronto, and he's gone on to do really great things. And I've always loved working with Matt. Like, we're quite close. And he has very strong sound ideas that he puts into his edit, which are really interesting and are really ingrained in the picture editing process. So it's always a pleasure to sort of work with him and try and translate those ideas to the final track. Paul, had you worked with him before? No, I had not. I came to this project through uh, the producer, Harrison, and we had worked together on some Fox pictures. And since they were coming to Baton Rouge, he just said, this is it. You know, I submitted my resume, had a quick talk, and that's how I became involved. Well, one of the fun things about having been working on Tonebenders for over a decade is uh, we tend to have recurring uh, directors and such like that. So way back in 2013, I interviewed the sound team of Martha Mary May Marlene. I can never remember the order of that, which was one of Sean Durkin's first films. Yeah, Martha Marcy May. Yeah, Martha Marcy May Marlene. There we go. And uh, Carl Anderson, who worked on the sound on that, said that one of his favorite things about working with Sean was that uh, he was open to ideas, but whenever you gave him an idea, it gave him a bigger idea. So his quote was that A and B equaled way more than C. When all the ideas were put in, it built something new. Is Sean still that kind of person to collaborate with? Uh, Yeah, 100%. I think we all would agree with that. Like he's... He's never been like super specific, instructive about, you know, what we're supposed to do. So that's very freeing. And he's always open to a new idea. Uh, and, and a lot of, I think, our experience on this film particularly was there was a real evolution in not just the picture editing, but also the soundtrack over the course of the months that we were, were working on it. 
Yeah, this was probably the most like, yeah, the, the the most a project I've ever worked on that's like changed and really evolved and like found itself through the process. Uh, like a lot of things you kind of work on, you know, you do a spotting, you're like, yep, this is the thing we're doing. This is going to be cool. Uh, and this started like that. And then it was like, well, what if we do this? And then what if we do this? And then what if we do this? And then it was like a totally different thing by the end, which is like a pretty cool thing to, you know, experience. Martin? Yeah, and also, I mean, we'll probably keep coming back to this idea of of Sean having a sort of verite style. It's more pronounced in Martha Marcy May Marlene, probably, but there are still elements of it, as you know, even with the Iron Claw. And part of that is him, you know, for example, in the spotting sessions that we've done, him coming to us with some ideas, but very often just saying, you know, I, I want to do something here. I want I want you to do something here. And obviously that kicks it over to us. He's always thinking simple and straightforward but that you know that's not to be confused with with bland he 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 wants it to come forward with some kind of idea paul what was it like working with sean on set oh it was actually very good as i said he was very supportive i don't needle i mean they have enough to do on the day of so occasionally we check in how are we doing okay you right i didn't have an opportunity to really sit and chat at the beginning and that showed in the first day and I thought, I had worked with other European directors, uh, whereas my crew had not. And I thought, aha, so we're not going to do coverage. And, you know, it's a film where people don't wear shirts. So you just can't put labs everywhere. So we had to be a little bit more vigorous in putting plants and being clever. And, you know, I also learned to appreciate how he and Mateus would evolve the shot. So you just have to kind of be engaged and, you know, it's not a kind of film, even though, and I find small films to be sometimes more challenging because of this, because they see things and stuff happens. And so you have to kind of be ahead of that curve and so put things out that may or may not work. And so I, I come from the school with a lot of plant mics and, and covering a lot of different things because, you know, like I said, it may not happen in coverage. Well, one of the things about this film that I really enjoyed and I think really uh, shone through was the crowds in all of the wrestling matches. In my personal work, I hate cutting crowds. Well, I actually like cutting crowds, but I'm never in love with what I finish with. I find it to be a really hard thing to do. Uh, Whenever I'm finished, I always feel like I haven't quite got to where I want to. And this film, uh, I think these crowds are really, they're present all the time, but they don't feel overbearing, and they swell in uh, really pleasing ways. And it feels like you're in a wrestling crowd. It doesn't just feel like a wash of white noise, which sometimes happens with crowds. And wrestling crowds are also notoriously interactive. They're not a crowd that sits there on their hands. They interact, they boo, they cheer. So that's a daunting task when you take this on. And I'm wondering if maybe we can kind of do a deep dive into that world, uh, maybe taking it a piece of at a time, start with uh, how it was mic'd on set, then maybe talk about how uh, the sound design was done, how loop group was added, how dialogue was handled, and how it was mixed. So uh, maybe we can take that piece at a time. Uh, we'll go back to you, Paul, talk about how you went about uh, miking both the crowds and the wrestlers, because as you mentioned, they're not wearing any clothes and they're throwing themselves into each other at large uh, speeds and intensities. So I'm assuming miking... Uh, with the labs would have been extremely difficult. So how did you tackle that? Yes, right. Non-existent. You know, you, I mean, they, there's nowhere to hide a lavalier on them. But we had, this, in my crew, we had previous experiences with a lot of boxing films. So the first thing was to get with the art department and say, okay, so the, here's the ring. How's that going to be set up? 
And we knew from past experiences, we had baffles put underneath the uh, ring itself, empty cardboard boxes. So that helps tamp down that overriding low-end frequency that can overload your mics immediately if you're not careful. And then, uh, so we had a microphone underneath there, like a Shep's BLM, just to get the hits on the underneath the ring. And you know, we're also, we, we have close-up, we have wide shots, so everything we have to do has to be hidden. A lot of times we put a mic either on the ring ties, or we put them right there where the, the fabric of the skirt uh, goes around there. We'd have, and we move that around depending on like, oh, he's gonna go over there, he's gonna fall on that. People on the sidelines had mics on them if they were yelling from the side of the, the training coaches and so it, those who would be allowed, you know, to pay people who were not. And then we had an MS stereo up in about 40 feet away up in the stands and the boom would then follow camera. So if the camera did get in close and someone was saying something, he's a rather large fellow. Donovan Thibodeau did a great job booming. He could reach over and get that mic, be right there on them. And like I said, our experience doing a One Night in Miami paid off you know, to everyone's benefit here. So that was kind of the basic line. And we would move things around somewhat as camera, but we didn't, you know, the MS didn't move every time because they actually moved the crowd around. And you're right, you know, it's last thing you want to do is hear that standing wave chop sound out of the out of the arena. The wrestling arena is a bit different than boxing because of its crucible, if I should use that word, shape of the arena versus boxing tends to be more flat out. So And how much how many extras were there for the crowd? Was it a full crowd or was it a lot of was that digital added? No, it was not it was not a full crowd. It kind of did, you know, plates, which is the, the, the latest thing to do both uh because they can do it technology wise and, and cost efficient. I don't know, maybe 100 people, but that's a space that could hold a lot more. So that was the other trick is like, you you know, you have mics in the pat in the back, but then you have to have a mic, you know, besides the skirt mic, we had another plant on a stick. We move around on the ground to get some close-up noises of people in the first, second, third row might say something. And then it's up to them to choose how that fits into the picture. But, you know, I have to record it for them to use it. So I guess next in the process would be you, Brennan. Uh, what did you do with the sounds that you got from Paul and what did you add and how did you start building those crowds? Yeah, so for Post Sound, for our team, the kind of gateway into this film was the wrestling matches. Matt Hannum is always very specific that key sounds in the film are original. So we knew that special detail had to be taken care of with the crowds themselves and more so the hits. And we we're very lucky because originally myself, Paul German, and the rest of the team were all trying to figure out how are we going to rent a space that's similar acoustically? How are we going to either assemble a ring or have fully build a ring that we can record with? And then we received these recordings from Paul and it was a gold mine. Like we had all this mic coverage that he's speaking of. Um, you know, he was putting microphones under the ring where the actual metal frame and the wood flexing would have that kinetic sound that's so important to wrestling, I think. And, you know, that having that mid perspective, ringside perspective, and that distant perspective, it totally captured this acoustic space. And the recordings that he did during training sequences that were void of crowd, so where there was just, let's say, Kevin in the ring, doing training sequences, those became the basis of all the wrestling hits that we hear in the movie. And then his production crowd recordings became that kind of close, mid-distant basis for all the crowds and reactions throughout the film. So Matt wanted to make sure that 
we had these original authentic wrestling hit sounds and crowds. So he asked us to come on early while they're picture editing and basically make him stems that he could use and then remix as he continued to edit the film. We did that. We kind of did the the basic coverage of a very wide, distant roar wash, that kind of more mid perspective. And then what was, I think, the most important in this film is that kind of close-up aggressive texture. So we had those as the basic crowd. And then we had a separate pre-dub bank for reactions, a separate pre-dub bank for chants and kind of rhythmic things. So stomping on the, the floorboards, clapping, chanting Kevin's name. And then we had a different bank for booing and jeering. And we felt that was enough flexibility during the mix, hopefully, to be able to shape the film in those wrestling matches. So how did you go about getting those chants and stuff? Is that where Loop Group comes in? A big part of the starting phase, because when we were doing the uh, picture edit and we were doing temp sound originally, there were these big moments where... So for example, one main chant, like one very pivotal chanting moment is where there's a wrestling match between Kevin and Harley Race, who is the heel. And there's kind of this moment where... Kevin is flat on his back. He's needing to come back. Their whole crowd's chanting his name. And Paul had recordings of the actual crowd chanting Kevin. And it was great because it was this kind of like, it was rhythmic, but it wasn't perfect. So it, it had that kind of loose feel that they were really gunning for this entire film. They wanted, you know, the additional elements that we put on top of that to match that. So everything always had a staggered kind of off kilter rhythm to it. Nothing was precise, but it all started with, with Paul's actual recordings. And then Martin, of course, would add through Loop Group and we would use other crowds that, you know, with envelope followers and plugins like Envy and stuff, you could kind of shape a larger crowd to fit around that rhythmic chant that was captured on set. So Martin, how did you tackle Loop Group? I believe you worked with Dan Fink for this project, right? Yeah. Well, if you need Loop Group in North America, you go to Dan Fink. It's, uh, that's, that's, my, that's my impression. Uh, listen, just before we go on to that, I do want to say, uh, following on from Brennan, production sound mixers who are listening, I am begging you, if you have 100 people in a particular room, which is the location, and you have a chance to record them doing anything, just doing anything with their voices, please, please, please do it. Because when we have eight or 10 people in loop group, we, we cannot achieve the, the, the same result. So yeah, so we went to um, Dan Fink and Daphne Gaines out of, out of New York City. I, I started working with Dan a couple of years ago on the Summer I Turn Pretty series. And uh, yeah, and he's just obviously amazing. He's an, an incredible resource in terms of being able to get a hold of actors, in, uh, especially in New York City. But um, the whole movie, the whole of The Iron Claw takes place in the South. And it you know pretty much takes place entirely in Texas. So we needed a loop group of 10 proper Texans, not just, you know, people who were doing the accent. And, uh, and it was, actually, it's funny because, uh, because COVID restrictions were still on for SAG-AFTRA in terms of recording loop group. And also the, the strike was about a week away. Oh. A few, so um, a lot of these guys were actually in Texas because they, you know, they 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 didn't have work to worry about, so they'd sort of gone home and stuff like that. So we had Texans in Texas doing our loop group, which I think is kind of cool. But uh, yeah, and and then really, the, I mean, a major consideration, of course. And you know what? If I was going to do this again, I might do it slightly differently because we ended up doing an eight-hour day with ten people, but. I really hadn't realized the 
the toll it was going to take on these people's voices uh, because, you know, essentially the movie is quiet dialogue scene between, uh, you know, two or three or a handful of people in a very quiet location. And then boom, we go, we go to a wrestling match. So there wasn't an awful lot of loot group apart from the wrestling. So so over and over again, I was having to get this loot group just to run their voices ragged. But it was, you know, and it, and it was an adventure because it, you know, as uh, as an ADR person in my head, what I'm hearing is what you're first spotting the film. You've got these plenty of moments where you're in the ring with the wrestlers, and, and like you, like you were saying before, and like Paul was saying, you know, we're expecting to hear a, a very quiet crowd and then lots of <clears throat> from the wrestlers, and then you know a ton of callouts coming from the crowd. You know, come on, Kevin, die. Take that, you bum, all that kind of stuff. And then you come up against Sean's vision, which was much more to do with he he wanted the crowd to be oppressive, to be on top of us. He didn't want to always hear the wrestlers. And so then in the mix, it began to shape itself where the loop group, it wasn't so much about um, call-outs that you could hear. It was more about a texture that was on top. Matt and Graham can probably talk to this a lot better than I can. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the loop group was incredible. It's I have a pretty severe cheese meter for loop group, and it was the most usable loop group I've ever had outside of the wrestling scenes. And yeah, in, in terms of what we did with the the wrestling itself like there were i guess like 10 tracks and just spread out around but what we did instead of trying to place call outs at specific moments i just saturated the entire track and drenched it in reverb and it just gave it this other sort of like distorted kind of feel that fit in with all the stuff that graham was doing and graham can really talk about the evolution of the crowd mixing it went through a bunch of iterations Sure okay, Graham, let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, yeah, it was really interesting because kind of like I said before, where this this film really like really changed and like found itself through the process. Like when I started in the like getting all the material and, and diving into the premix portion of it, you know, I had layers and layers and banks and banks, which is great. Like all this material, I was premixing it. I was like, oh, this is going to be so loud. And this is going to be like all through the room. And there's going to be like a guy over here yelling and like all this stuff's going to move. And all these perspectives are going to be like, we're going wide and close and bang, bang, bang. And went through it all. And I was like, this is awesome. And then we got into the mix and like kind of hit play and watched the first wrestling scene. And I was like, oh, my brain just totally turns off and starts like, <laughs> removing the crowd because it's just like you know you know when you're like at a at an event and it kind of just becomes a wash and it just like disappears and like it's not interesting it's just noise um so like for all the work and all the layers and all the interesting material that was there it was like if it's always at 10 you you stop caring really quickly so then it became um this sort of like kind of dual prong process of like what forces your brain to try to ignore sounds like that and it was like a little bit of like frequency fatigue and then um like a little bit of just like that consistent sort of wash of it all and that's where we started diving into like what brandon was talking about in the in the different banks and like really trying to find balances and weaves and moves between the stuff that was like the big wash um which really just became kind of like a background bed for everything and then really just finding these moments um sometimes 
based on what the picture was doing, but mostly really based on what the drama of each like fight was, like what the, you know, what we were kind of saying, where like you know when they're booing, when they're cheering, who is the crowd rooting for? Who is the crowd upset by? Are they excited by the move? Are they quieting down because they're in shock? Like all those kinds of moments, which I know sound very like basic, but just like finding that kind of wave to really like help sell the drama. And like every time you do that, I felt like you would kind of clue back in and it would sort of like guide you along this sort of narrative. There's like a, you know, we knew that looking at old matches and stuff, we knew that the crowds would tell the story of the matches. And that was always kind of like in the backs of our minds. So I think once Graham had done his first pass and we had all looked at it and realized it needs to be, you know, more specific and shaped differently and not this kind of like consistent framing of it then you know playing into the theater of the wrestling i think is is where it went next yeah and these these recordings um from paul and then that went through brennan and were like supplemented all this stuff with like aggression um was really great because it it kind of really helped tie into the fact that like this movie was about the wrestlers in the ring not really about presenting like an exciting wrestling film if that makes sense like it wasn't it wasn't like here's like here's the excitement of a wrestling match it was like this is what it's like in the ring like as the humans who are wrestling and it's just this like this cacophony of like aggressive texan males Um, (laughs) (laughs) and it's and it's great well i had an interesting experience in that uh I, i got to see an advanced screening of the film and uh, I really didn't know anything about it other than, like, the trailer had uh, Tom Sawyer by Rush kicking in it and a bunch of wrestling scenes. Like, I thought I was going to see uh, a happy-go-lucky wrestling film. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, it's not that, but it, it's a really intense and enjoyable film, but it's just not the film I thought I was going to see. And uh, in addition to the crowds having to tell the story... There are characters that come up, like Riley, that we spoke about earlier, that we don't really have much of a history with in the film. He just arrives, and the crowds tell us that he's a bad guy. The crowd is an important part of the plot. Oh, sorry, you mean Harley Race? Harley, sorry, Harley, not Riley. That's okay. Yeah, Harley Race arrives, and uh, he's the heel, but it's the crowd that kind of tells us that he's the heel, because within the plot of the film, I didn't know who he was until the crowd started booing the hell out of him. And, uh, like, that kind of storytelling off-screen, well, I guess technically the crowd's on-screen, but it's not the the main thing we're seeing at times, uh, that leaves a lot of pressure on the sound team to convey all that uh, story. How much back and forth, did you ever feel like you went too far with it, or was there ever the director telling you, you got to push more, push more, push more? I think we, if, yeah, in terms of, like, going too far or push more, I think it was... (laughs) The opposite of most of my experiences where we actually started out being too far uh, and then had to kind of dial it back more so in like we kind of it was like everything was on the wall in the first pass. And then it was more whittling down to find the detail and the specificity within those crowds. So it kind of it was never really like push, push, push. It was more like like what what do we need to feel here from the crowd? What do we need to like telegraph? Um, and that was kind of our like pecking through all the stuff and it's it's kind of like that thing was like how do you peel back so that you get the specificity but then don't lose the energy and that was kind of the the constant balance of like trying to find this thing and we we actually used the atmos a lot too which was interesting where you know a lot of people in atmos are it's like you know there's things like flying through the room or like you know stuff going over your head and like this is not that movie um but we were able to find a lot of like 
energy in the, the surround work in theatrical atmos being able to do these waves of crowd that move around the room like back to front or almost in like a bit of a circle so you'd almost feel the like rush of energy go from ring through the auditorium i also think it's uh, important to, to note that for the most part we had a really amazing guide track for the matches and that was from paul's recordings he put up a wide Paul, you put up a wide midside that we use it's almost playing the entire time in those wrestling matches. And all of the stuff that you're hearing is is basically shaped after what was actually happening on set. Yeah, we usually uh, this is Paul again. Um we usually um use I like using MS stereo because in post then they have a choice. They can either go mono collapse, they can go they can vary the width. Logistically it's good for us. We can move it around as we need to be. And we cable that back to the cart. But um, I've often liked, you know, if you want to do a recording space, and, you know, you have to fight that on-set stuff like, oh, I don't know about that. They'll get it in the effects library. And it's like, no, dude, this is where the libraries come from because crowds are, in fact, the hardest thing to create. So, you know, our job, I never missed the opportunity to punch record when there were people out there. And even when they weren't, as I said, there were some rest, you know, we were up in another room looking down, and you see them sort of small in the background. We kept all those mics there, and even though we broke per- perspective through a glass plate, when we're in the office having those dialogue scenes, all that's being recorded full up. And then, you know, because now they have a choice how they want to use that. And I think also I want to s- mention something about overall the, the film. This is what Brendan was talking about. Is It's not just a, a match. It's we're inside their lives. And so our job was to always keep everybody big and intimate and not so much like an action adventure thing where they're out in their perspectives. I mean, those played a few times. And we had a couple of really difficult scenes. The driving up to the uh, garage band thing was a scene. But overall, you know, because we had, you know, who knew all of a sudden the camera's down at the end. That actually had two recorders. We put a recorder in the truck to record that because they got far out of RF range. And then when they came in, we segued over to that because we were tied to the music. We were doing a multi-track recording at the time. And the party scene was the same thing. It was kind of difficult, but we, you know, got it. But overall, when we remove from the wrestling and when we remove from all those kinds of other things, our job was to, dad was the backbone until he breaks at the end. He had to be big. And there had to be that intimacy, big sound between the brothers. Otherwise... You know, it just would never... And so without shirts on, we just kind of like, hmm, how are we going to do that? You know, so, but, but it was a single camera. I mean, we've done worse when you have three or four cameras and you're like, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. But uh, they, they were very supportive of that and, and Sean was very cognitive of how those things work. And in the dressing rooms, because that was such an ugly, reverberant, sonic material there. And again, no clo- nothing on top. They were getting ready for the wrestling room. Just outside the wall, we had a highway, you know, it was cars and stuff like that. So that that room had lots of little microphones hidden, trying to, you know, do our way and get what we could. And, you know, carpets and all those old sonic tricks, you know, that we live in the physical world, we record in the analog world, and then we push it to the digital world. There's a lot of sonic work that goes on in that physical world to get something for these gentlemen to work with. Paul, I'll tell you, the mic that you hid in Ric Flair's belt, championship belt, saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
Well, that, well, that was Charlie Mascagini. She said, hmm, maybe we put it in his belt. And, you know, and then he became game with it. We said, sure, let's do it. You know, sometimes you just have to get outside that box and uh, uh, think about what else, you know, where. You just have to get a mic close. Doesn't, you know, I'm not tied to this or this all the time. It's just... Well, just to paint just to paint a picture for people, we have uh, a uh, a wrestler. You know, he's just come he's just come off stage. He's so he's got still still just wearing his trunks. He's got his championship belt on. In this, as Paul was saying, in this very nasty reverberant changing room, and he's pacing up and down, pacing up and down, delivering this speech. And you know, Boom doesn't get it. There's there's no lav available. You could put as many plants in there as you want, but it's going to keep going in and out. Uh, but they had a mic in his championship belt, and we use that for the whole thing. It's fantastic. I had a great team. You know, it, it is about team. You know, nobody makes this film on their own. It really is about teamwork, people working together, and, and you know, making sure the workflow moves along appropriately. Tim, I also just want to be explicit about what Paul was just saying before. The two times that we see Mike's band playing, that's all sync. Wow. Yeah, especially at the party. You know, they, they, Paul and his team did a really, really careful job of miking that properly. And of course, what you get is an absolutely brilliant sense of this kid's garage band actually playing live. Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. We brought in a, a, a separate mixer to do the music with his separate mics. He was in one room focusing on that. And then we had our, our film mics as, so that we could cover the, the movement through the room, MS stereo outside, because we knew, I, mean, I just knew you can't do everything. And that's, that's, you, have to, you have to understand that. And it's like, well, we have to break this up in order to do the job that's required here. Otherwise, it becomes a compromise. So kudos for you gentlemen to pull all of that out. Well, that first party scene, well, not first, the, the party scene early in the film, uh, it's right after Carrie comes home. They go out and see the band. Uh, it's a really important scene because it shows the bond between all the brothers. But at the same time, it, you have to establish that one brother is uh, artistic. He's different than the other ones. And this music has to both be present and also not present enough because there's dialogue happening so that's a really tricky balance to uh, deal with matt how did you tackle that uh well we had uh, these great multi-track recordings from paul obviously and so i basically instead of panning it i sort of built inside of a fold tr folder track i built the room and did like a rotation on it with indoor and spanner um and then for you know david and carrie and pam like when you're they're up close we used I think like music rebalance or one of those plugins to sort of isolate them as as much as possible so they're sort of sitting outside of that rotation rotating room then yeah that's how we did it we knew like Matt Hannum sent me the multi-track really early on and he's like we got to use this and I listened to it and I'm like yeah it's amazing I'll figure it out that's how it wound up being mixed I like how casual are I'll figure it out <laughs> I, I, I took five minutes it, right? it didn't no take five, it took longer than five minutes it took it took a, <laughs> took about an hour in my basement and it was funny because my my 10 year old son was just sitting at the top of the steps, just listening to the song. He's like, what is that song? <laughs> I mean, the song is amazing. So I can't wait to play him the final version. So this is a wrestling film. We've talked about the crowds. We haven't talked about the sound of the actual wrestling yet. We got uh, half naked men smashing into each other. Uh, they're smashing into ropes. They're smashing into the ground. We talked a bit about the uh, sound of the mat. Uh, let's talk about maybe, Brennan, if you want to dig into how you built the sound of the actual fights, because I think they're pretty unique sounding as well. 
Yeah, so Paul and I, Paul the other sound designer, again used Paul Ledford's production tracks to create the basis of the sounds. So we took his different perspectives, kind of pre-mixed them together in order to create a sequence that would be the basic layer. And that was really important to us that it capture the kind of acoustic space of the environment. But once we knew what the physical sounds of the ring were, like this idea of wood planks sitting on a metal frame, which flexes and has canvas or pads on top, we knew we could kind of use elements to layer those. So for instance, like the door, the front door of my condo is a wood door that has a metal frame. So you find yourself out in the middle of the night, you know, banging that back and forth to try and get some extra snap for your sound. Uh, And when we were editing it, we were trying to do all the typical tricks of finding ways to make your specifics pop through a layer of everything else that's going on, be it music, crowd, whatever. So, you know, having everything in separate pre-dub banks so that you can duck the roar of a crowd just as the transient of a hit comes through. And then as that releases, the kind of crowd reaction comes up. So that's this kind of, you know, um, very delicate dance. But when we got to the mix, all of that got thrown out the window and it became a completely different shape altogether, which I'll let uh, Matt and Graham touch on. But I think it's interesting because it started out as, for me anyways, it was like that kind of fight club style, realistic sound because we knew it was never going to be Hollywood. We knew it was never going to be big hits. We knew it had to sound real, but I never knew it would turn into an action film that didn't really have attack or transience. It was more of this kind of release and a blooming of the acoustic space that you're in. And I found that to be quite different. I don't know if Matt and Graham, you want to touch on that? Well, I think it's because, you know, when you watch those early matches, you don't, depending on what era you watched it in and what ring you watched and how it was mic'd, you don't really hear, you don't hear people getting punched, right? And so Sean was really sensitive to like, I, you know, there was all these kinds of juxtapositions of, of everything with the announcer of Bill and then the crowds. You want to feel like you're in the crowds, but he definitely wanted the hits and stuff to sound like you were watching it on TV. Like you, you're just hearing the bumps, really. And there's exceptions to that. Like there's a couple of times like in the Ric Flair match where it gets really sort of visceral and aggressive and messy, I guess. But I think that really came from Sean, wouldn't you say, Graham? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think Sean Dirk and the director. Yes, Sean Dirk. Yeah, so Sean, um, the director, was, yeah, like, every time we kind of go through a match, we go through all these fights. And, you know, I had these great layers uh, from Paul, from Brennan, from Footsteps, our Foley uh, team. Uh, And it was, you know, this layer and this, this mix and match of everyone doing, like, details. And it all sounded great. But when we started playing with it, yeah, Sean was kind of reacting, just being like, this feels... This feels like a movie about wrestling, and I want it to feel like I'm like I want it to feel like I'm watching the wrestling I remember. Yeah, um, and a lot of that was yeah, like memories of old matches, but also just like the memory and the knowledge of what like Paul's um, recording from set sounded like. So we started just trying to kind of like yeah figure that out and it'd be like you know mute a layer or turn down a layer, and every time we just like turn down a layer or remove a thing, it just it's still. It felt like it was all there, just like got a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller. So what we started doing is we started kind of just, yeah, just taking out the transients so that you'd have this like the bloom of the 
of the big auditorium like that would all still be there and so, and 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 the the hit was always there because we didn't want to lose the energy of not having those moments but just that like that attack that sharp cut through kind of sound effects thing that we always do we just started like and we're talking like half a frame maybe a frame just like a little fade like little ducks um but it just it it kind of just rounded everything out into a place where it felt more realistic um, but also really helped feel like it was always being crushed by the crowd, which was kind of that feel that we all were like going for. And it's definitely something I've never done because, yeah, you always use those to like, that's the thing that gets through. Like that's, that's your moment. And, <laughs> and we kind of went backwards on that. So just quickly, let's talk about, there's one really cool particular scene where our main character, Kevin, is running back and forth on the ring and hitting the ropes, bouncing off and going back and forth. <laughs> and it's just, a, it's just a kind of amazing little scene. Uh, and the sound of the ropes, I've never been up close to a wrestling ring before, so I, I don't know what ropes sound like, but they sounded super cool in that scene. Is that mostly location? And what did you add to it? How did that you tackle that one? 100% location. And ah, not to not to burn Brennan here, but Brennan did <laughs> an incredible job of sound designing that scene. That sequence belonged in a different section of the film when we initially saw it. It was and then when we were mixing it, Graham spent like hours like perfecting it and it sounded so good. But then when we watched it with Sean and Matt Hannum, they were like, This is a sad moment and all I can think about is the sound of these ropes. <laughs> And so what we did is we just like started removing stuff. And in the end, all that's left is the production recording. And it's an amazing recording. But yeah, that's sort of how it wound up that way. Yeah, I remember, I think it was Sean. It might have been Matt Hannum. But I remember one, like as we were, you know, going through these hours of trying to perfect all this design, which again, amazing. But at some point, one of them was like, yeah, just to be clear, this isn't a training montage. This yeah. is a depression montage. We're yeah. like, uh, okay. he, he needs to be <laughs> he needs to be lonely, right? And that's that's the point of of that sequence. And it, it didn't start that way. It started as a much more kinetic thing. Yeah. Well, if sound director's cuts are ever a thing, pop it in there somewhere. <laughs> I'd like to add that unlike sometimes boxing, we saw early on they used the ropes a lot more here. Then you know because they would get up on the ropes and make their jumps, or it was all part of the of the of the sequence. So you know the the great thing about the lavaliers nowadays, especially DPAs that we were using, is they're very small. So we could put the transmitter back on the corner where the ties are, run the cable out to that. And the other thing, which you did mention earlier about, you know, for anyone listening to this and they're faced with doing these kind of things, yeah, the the wrestlers, everybody in the ring doesn't have a shirt on, except for the referee. Always put a mic on the referee. Because, you know, at some point, he may say something, he might, even if not, he becomes a moving plant mic for you if you can't get in there. So I don't know how much of that is tracks, yeah. the referee tracks, but it comes to the whole thing is like, how close can I get a mic? And who's going to be able to do that? And you just have to kind of break through, like, well, he doesn't say anything. Why are you putting a mic on him? You have to explain to the AD, it's like, this is why, because he's going to be sort of like the boom guy, but we're not going to tell him that. Yeah, 100%. Like almost all of the, with the exception of like efforts and things like that, all of the dialogue you might hear in a wrestling match was pretty much captured on the day somehow. But because of how it's played, like it's just on the threshold, like it's being washed out by the crowd, we're able to get away with it. That's awesome. 
Well, thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, as I said, I went to the film expecting one journey and got a completely different journey. Uh, but it really affected me. And uh, there was a lot of emotions uh, coming out of me during the, the uh, especially the end. The end has a, it's not an action sequence, but I, I don't want to give it up. But uh, the end is really affecting ending that uh, really hit me hard. So uh, thank you very much for talking to me. Great work on the film. Congratulations, everybody. Thank you, Timothy. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, Cheers, Tim. Oh, that was a fun talk. I hope I get to work on a wrestling or boxing film one day. If you've not heard it, take a look back into our archives for episode 181, which is a roundtable talk about doing sound design for boxing and MMA films. Like the folks from Iron Claw, all the guests on that one had their hands full with crowds and fighting sounds. This episode was edited by Kieran Acharya. Kieran is a filmmaker from Northern Ireland, known for his collaborations with composers Clint Manzel and Carly Parody. He has worked on a number of political and music docs, including features with the bands Gamma Bomb and Oxbow. You can reach him at kiranacharia.co.uk or on socials at Who is Mr. Bishop. Okay, this is our last interview episode of 2023. Our next episode will be a fun one with the Tonebenders crew doing a draft of our favorite types of projects to work on. Lots of laughs there, so don't miss that one. My name is Tim Muirhead, and on behalf of the Iron Claw sound team and myself, Thanks for listening to the Tonebenders Sound Design Podcast. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.